0: And we're so happy to have you here today, everybody joining us. Welcome everybody on site, everybody watching online as well. Happy Easter. If you didn't know it was Easter, my shirt let you know. Um, It's either Easter, it's our uh, Miami Vice Comic Con, one of the two. We're one of the two. Um, Are you guys excited to be in God's house today? Are you excited? Awesome. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him he is risen He is risen. Put it in the chat online. He is risen. Hey, look, um, Cornerstone, if you are new, you don't know this. If you're regular, you already know. We're a little bit different here. We we just... We roll a little bit different at Cornerstone, and so today, as we get ready to hop into the sermon, we're going to be on brand. We don't want you to come and get a different experience than you would normally get on a weekend here at Cornerstone. So we're going to be a little bit different today, and what that means is uh, we're going to be looking at some scriptures to start off today's sermon that typically aren't Easter scriptures. These typically aren't the ones that you hear uh, on Easter morning, but. I think God has some uh, really interesting stuff He wants to show us today in His Word. So, where we're going to be starting is about two years prior. To Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. About two years prior, so about a year in to Jesus' ministry, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8. Now before we hop there, we're we're going to have the words on the screen in just a moment, the verses so you can follow along. I just want to give a little bit of background on where we find ourselves as we jump into Matthew chapter 8. So Matthew chapters 1 and 2 talk about Jesus' birth. Matthew chapter 3 and 4 kind of talk about the, the laying the groundwork and the foundation for Jesus's ministry, the preparation. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are Jesus's sermon on the fa- uh, on the mount, the most famous sermon he ever preached, just wisdom after wisdom of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. But then as soon as we enter chapter 8 of Matthew, something shifts. There's an abrupt change. Jesus throughout Matthew chapter eight, all of a sudden goes off and he lets everyone know, Hey, I'm not just this new radical teacher that you thought I was. You thought I was just laying out some new teaching you've never heard before. I'm not just that. There is more to me than meets the eye. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1, and we're going to be jumping all through uh, this chapter as we read. This is what it says in Scripture. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. We're going to jump down to verse 5. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will. Will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Verse 13, then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that very hour. When Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. A lot of scholars and theologians believe that Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law is why Peter would later deny Jesus three times. Um, you got good for you guys you got it it took a second you you guys had to buffer real quick before you got it then it hit there we go Uh, (laughs) told our crowd last night i was like man that's gonna hurt our mother's day attendance pretty bad (laughs) it's gonna cost us down the road uh (laughs) verse 16 that evening many demon-possessed people were brought to jesus he cast out the evil spirits with a simple command, and he healed all of the sick. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said he took our sicknesses and removed our diseases. Verse 23 of chapter 8. Then Jesus got into a boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, "'Lord, save us! We're going to drown!' Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up, rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man? They asked. Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, what we've seen all throughout chapter 8, just one encounter after another after another of Jesus encountering the effects of sin. That's what's happening. Jesus is one after another encountering the effects of sin. What sin has done, the way it has made our world fall. Jesus encounters someone with leprosy, someone with paralysis, someone with fever. He encounters all of these illnesses, all these diseases, things that are the direct result of sin. Jesus encounters people who are demon-possessed, who are possessed by dark spirits, a direct result of the fall of rebellion. Jesus encounters this, this storm. This violent storm that's threatening to take the ship under, even nature, even nature has kind of turned and been cursed in a certain way because of the fall, because of man's rebellion. But here's what's so amazing. As we read through all of those, did you notice something? That when Jesus encountered sin, rather than sin affecting Jesus, Jesus affected sin. Do you see that? In every single one of those scenarios, Jesus encountered the person with leprosy, and rather than him becoming unclean or sick, they became well. Jesus encounters the storm, and rather than taking their boat down, the seas are calmed at his word. Sin doesn't affect Jesus. Jesus affects sin. He's doing the exact same thing today. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us today as we study your word, that you would illuminate it in our hearts and in our minds. We want to be transformed today in a way that only you can do, in a way that only your Holy Spirit can do. Work in our midst, God. Work in our hearts, and we'll be sure to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. We love you so much, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and share with them the title of today's sermon, Gold from Golgotha. Tell them we're going to get gold from Golgotha. It's a fun word to say, right? (laughs) Gold from Golgotha. Now, here's here's the thing that you may be wondering if you know what Golgotha is. Golgotha is the place of the skull. Golgotha is the name of the place where Jesus was crucified. And you may feel like you, you need to remind me, like, pastor, it's Easter Sunday, <laughs> Good Friday was a few days ago. Why, why are we talking about Golgotha today? Why are we talking about the cross today? Well, we're talking about it because the cross is the climax of the story of how God became king. So what we've been focusing on this last six weeks is me, Pastor Donnie, and Pastor Brenda have been teaching. We've been teaching and telling the story of how God has become king of the world. And the absolute climax of that story is the cross of Jesus Christ? Not the end of the story, right? The cross isn't the end of the story, but it's the climax of the story. The climax, um, the, the climax, typically always comes before the end, right? It's, it's always kind of in the middle. It, it, any film aficionados out there, right? You you know that that's how it works. Um, Star Wars fans, the original trilogy. There we go. I see those. I see those hands. Hallelujah! There they are. <laughs> Star Wars fans. Um, the Empire Strikes Back, right? It's the middle part of the original trilogy, and it's like the most important, the most vital part. It's the climax. It's where everything that the first movie had been building up to meets and where everything that the third movie concludes finds its climax. That, that middle part is so pivotal. It's the same thing if you're a Batman fan. Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Trilogy, the second movie, The Dark Knight. It's the climax. It's the pivot point. Back to the Future fans. Any Back to the Future fans? There we are. There's the hands. All right, we got some Back to the Future fans in here. Um, The same thing, Back to the Future, part two. It's what the first movie built up to. It's what the third movie concluded from, the climax. It's not the end, but it is the pivot point of the story. And let me tell you, the cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point. It is the climax of the story of how God became king. It's the hinge point of history. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've been talking about how what the Bible is, is the story of how God became king. If we can kind of just sum it up uh, neatly into one sentence, of course, the Bible is so many things. It's, it's a collection of 66 books written over thousands of years by more than 40 different authors. I mean, it's, it's a lot. But if we were to sum it up, that's really probably the best summary we can say is that it's the story of how God became king. And like any story, we can see themes play itself out throughout the story. And one of the major themes that you see in Scripture over and over and over again, if you've ever read the Bible for yourself, you've seen it, is that there is a common theme that replays itself, and that is a theme of rule, rebellion, and rescue. We talked about this week three of this series, that what God intended from the beginning was to rule with mankind. He wanted us to rule his creation. It was the first command in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. He told them to go subdue the earth, rule it. God wants to work through his people and rule with us. But what do we do? We rebel. We think we know better. We think we got a better handle on things. God doesn't see the full picture, but we do. So we rebel. And in our rebellion, we meet our own consequences. And as we face those consequences, we realize how bad we need a rescuer, how bad we need saved. And we see that same cycle Play over and over and over again. It happened in the Garden of Eden, rule rebellion, rescued. It happened in the flood narrative, with Noah. it happened in the book of Exodus. It happened with the judges, uh, these people that God raised up to lead the nation of Israel. And then it happened later with the kings, uh, whenever Israel became its own uh, uh, nation, its own monarchy, the kings. God wanted to rule through them, they would rebel, the nation would rebel, and they'd need rescued. And it eventually culminated, we we talked about this, in the fact that the temple, the Jewish temple, the place that symbolized God's presence here on earth, was destroyed by a pagan empire in 586 B.C. Just completely demoralizing the Israelite nation and their faith. And even though they would rebuild the temple about 70 years later, it wasn't the same, they could feel God's absence. They could feel God's silence. God wanted to rule through them, they rebelled And now they needed rescued, but no rescue was coming. And 500 years passed until Jesus stepped on the scene at the climax. Now, what makes the cross and the events that led up to the cross, the climax of the story of how God became king? Well, it's simple. It's one word, confrontation, conflict. Every good climax has conflict has confrontation has a fight has a battle and that's exactly what we had as Jesus would meet sin on the cross you see sin will never go down without a fight will it you know that to be true i don't need to preach that to you today you know you know sin does not go down without a fight uh, any history buffs in the room history buffs anybody online history buffs i love history it's my favorite Favorite thing, I still study it today. I love learning about history. I remember being uh, in school and learning about the Punic Wars. The Punic Wars that took place between the empire of Rome and the empire of Carthage. Rome ended up winning. They they won this battle against this other nation, Carthage. But let me tell you, the Punic Wars were devastating. Devastating. Listen, Listen to what had to happen for Rome to finally and utterly squash the nation of Carthage. Listen to what it took. There were a total of three wars. The Punic Wars, there were three wars. The first, second, and third Punic War. Over the course of those three wars, there were over 100 battles that took place between Roman and Carthaginian forces. 1.8 million lives are estimated to have been lost. In the three wars, you want to know how long they lasted? From the onset of the first Punic War to the end and the conclusion of the third Punic War, the the, the final war where Carthage was utterly destroyed, it ceased to exist as a nation anymore. It was 118 years. 118 years. Think about us when we finally got out of Afghanistan. That's what everyone was saying. Finally, man, 20 years. Finally, 20 years. Can you believe how long it's been? 118 years of conflict to finally put an end to this competing this enemy nation. You see that's how it is with sin. <laughs> sin doesn't go down with one battle or two or three. It doesn't even go down with one war or two or three. You have to fight Tooth and nail to the bitter end. That's how it is with sin. And just when you think you've got it, Master, just whenever you think that old habit, you've got control of it. You don't, you don't need outside help. I've got this. I've got willpower. Just when you think that you've got it, it gets you. Just when you think you've got it, it gets you. It makes me think there's these videos that parents will post on social media of them uh, trying to see how, how good their kid's patience is. And so they'll, they'll take like two marshmallows put them down in the room, put their two kids in the room, and then put up a camera and be like, all right, I'll be right back. i got to go do something. Then don't don't eat these marshmallows until I get back. You've seen these things, right? So the parent leaves, and inevitably there's always the one kid who's like, eats it instantly, and the other kid's like, oh, Tommy, you're not supposed to. And they wait, and the mom comes back in. And, you know, Tommy, he went ahead and ate his. I was good. I didn't eat mine, right? We look at these, and, and it looks like, man, this one kid just has so much willpower and the other one is just like, oh, whatever. I'm just going to eat whatever. I'm, I'm fine doing whatever. Um, and we can look at that. and That's kind of a good analogy for how we can be with sin in our own lives. We look at other people around us, and we're like, oh. Your weak willpower. Oh man, I just feel I just feel so bad for you. If only If only you had the willpower like me, because I don't give in to sin like this person does, like my like my sister does. I don't give in to sin like my boss does, like my coworkers do. I'm so up here and they're down here. They just eat that marshmallow the second they get the chance, right? My willpower is on another level though. But the fact of the matter is, the only reason you're better is because you don't like marshmallows, <laughs> right? Marshmallow ain't your flavor a sin. But when they put a Reese's cup down, right, Reese's egg, they put a little Reese's egg down, the, the parent can't even get out of the room. You've already eaten yours and the other kids. Like, you've eaten both of them. And so even the one of us who's in here who thinks that our willpower is so strong that like, oh, well, you know what, I'm, I'm able to keep my sin in check on my own. I mean, you're not, though. You're not. Can I tell you sin is stronger than you? And not only stronger, I think this is so much more important. Sin is more patient than you are. It it has nothing to do but wait. It can wait all day. And it'll wait. And you may feel like on your own, you're able to beat it once. You're able to beat that habit once, twice, three times, four times, seven times, eight times, nine times. But that tenth time, it's waiting for you. Because you're not strong enough on your own. You can't beat it on your own. We need rescue. We're too weak. We can't fight sin to the bitter end, and that's exactly how sin needs fought. It needs fought to the bitter end, just like the empire of Carthage needed fought for 118 years until finally they were beaten so badly they ceased to exist as a nation. That's what we need. We need someone who can fight for us and take sin to its breaking point. Who in here needs rescued? Absolutely. We all do. <laughs> Every single person, we need rescued because we can't do that on our own. What we need is someone who can take the full brunt of what sin has to offer. Someone who can take everything that it has to throw their way. And like Rome, someone who can land a decisive victory. You know, in in military parlance, whenever they talk about a decisive victory, what that means is whenever you defeat your enemy, you defeat this other nation in such a decisive way, you just cripple them that they actually lose the ability to make war. They just can't do it. They don't have the people. They don't have the resources. They don't have the manpower anymore. They are unable to make war. That's what we need. We need someone who is able to land the decisive victory against sin, who can take the full brunt of it and stay standing. Sin needed to do its worst and completely exhaust its force. And that's where Jesus steps into the picture. That's the climax that we're talking about today on the cross. We needed someone who could take the poison of sin and take it to its full effect so that sin could do its worst and like a hurricane, exhaust itself. My family, we go to the Outer Banks uh, every year, Outer Banks of North Carolina. We used to go in September, which was pretty dicey because that's like peak time of hurricane season. There's constantly hurricanes forming around September. And uh, normally we we somehow, we thread the needle. I don't know how we do it, but we somehow get in there before or after hurricane hits. Our dates are always fine. Um, But this one year, 2018, uh, we did not thread the needle that time. <laughs> we, we got there, we, I kid you not, we were there for two days and had to evacuate. Hurricane Florence came in. Um, we were watching it every single day. Leading up to vacation, I'm watching it at work on, on Weather Channel, just checking to see, is it diverting somewhere else? Is it weakening? But no, like almost all hurricanes starts off as a depression, becomes a tropical storm. It just keeps ga- gaining and gaining strength, right? Just crosses across the ocean, hits that warm water, gets more and more strength. And as it's coming towards land, it was a Category 4. It was Category 4. So it wasn't an option. Like, well, let's just try to ride this thing out. Like, no, we're, not. we're from Ohio. We ain't riding out a hurricane. Like, that ain't happening. Um, so it's, it's barreling down on us. And that's exactly what happens with hurricanes. They just continue to gain force until they hit land. Once they hit land, they unleash the full onslaught of their power. All of that wind, all of that water, all of that storm surge. But then guess what happens? They blow themselves out. They're exhausted. They start to dissipate over land. And after a few days, you can't even see the hurricane anymore. It's just a couple of scattered clouds over different parts of the country. That's what we needed. We needed someone to take the full force of sin so that it could do its worst and exhaust itself. Listen to how it's recorded in the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 through 5. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? This is the prophet Isaiah talking about Jesus hundreds of years before he would come. Verse 2, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him, and we looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Jesus took everything, the full force of sin. Think about this. Every bit of evil, every bit of wickedness, every bit of sin, every bit of violence, converged to meet Jesus at this one point in time on the cross. Think about that. Think about this. When you look at Jesus' ministry, you see this was happening his entire life. There was a gathering storm. From the second that first cry happened, in Bethlehem, there was a gathering storm, the forces of darkness colluding and plotting to snuff out Jesus's life, to stop him before he could do what he was sent here to do. We see it from day one. Day one, King Herod tried to have Jesus killed by having a, a, a proclamation sent out to kill all the baby boys under two. From day one, the forces of darkness, sin, wickedness, violence has been colluding and plotting to try to get Jesus out of the picture, this gathering Storm, and we see it get amplified during Jesus' ministry. As Jesus is going around announcing the kingdom of God and, and delivering people at the same time, we see demons shrieking out at him. We see the Jewish leaders and the high priests colluding and plotting to kill him. We see even his own best friends, his disciples, wavering in their commitment and their belief in him. At every attempt, sin was trying to snuff out Jesus and snuff out the kingdom of God. And guess what? It happens still today. Cornerstone, do we know something about that? We've probably, in the last five years, had f- at least five, five to seven things that most churches, it would just take them under. Like, for real. We, we've had... Big enough things that have happened in our church family in the last five to seven years, that a lot of other places would be like, you know, we're, we're closing up shop. We, we can't do it anymore. There's been thing after thing, and not just in our church as a whole, but in our individual families. Man, there are people in here who you are a living testimony to the fact that the powers of darkness are trying to snuff out anything good in this world. And your life is a testimony of that. Your marriage is a testimony of that. You you trying to raise your kids is a testimony to that. Because at every turn, as you're trying to do what you know you're supposed to do following Jesus as king, there is something out there trying to get you to do the opposite. Trying to snuff that out. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Sin, wickedness, evil, and violence converged on him on the cross. The climax of the story of how God became king. So how did Jesus win? We talk about it all the time, right? Jesus defeated sin and death. Jesus got victory over sin and death. How exactly did he win? What's that look like? What's it mean that Jesus defeated sin? Well, just like everything else, if you've been with us these weeks, you know, as we've been talking about the kingdom of God, everything in the kingdom of God is different than what you would expect in a kingdom. Everything Is different. If you want to be first, you need to be last. You want to be the greatest, you need to be a servant. You want to be the master, you need to be the slave. Everything is upside down. So when it comes to Jesus' decisive victory over sin, guess what? It's not what it looks like. It's not what you would have expected. If I were to sum it up, and I had a hard time trying to get one word to really sum up how I think Jesus won from studying Scripture and seeing what it says about him and what he did on the cross. But I think one word sums it up perfectly. Jesus won over sin through his meekness. Mild and meek Jesus. Jesus' meekness was not a weakness. It was his winning play. If you were to look that word up, meekness, and see what it means, if you go to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and just look at just the first definition that pops up, you know what it says, enduring injury with patience. Jesus is more patient than sin. He can outlast it. He can take the full brunt. He can endure every injury. It throws his way with patience, with humility, with submission. I'm just going to speak to the men in the room for a quick moment. Men, this is a hard one for us, isn't it? We don't like mild and meek Jesus. We like war horse Jesus, right? Jesus coming on the white horse. That's the that's a Jesus we like. But let me tell you, mile to meet Jesus is why you can have new life. And he is your king. So whenever we look at Jesus as king, we need to remember that Jesus who came in on the donkey is our king. And that goes for all of the men in the room too. That is the model. That is the example we follow. And that is how Jesus won the victory. Not through what the kingdoms of the world try to say. The kingdom of this world try to tell us, yeah, warhorse Jesus. That's the Jesus we like. That's what the kingdoms of the world try to put on us and try to put on Jesus. That's what they were expecting. That's what everyone's expecting. The kingdom of this world say, if you want to do something, if you want to have your way, get a bigger gun. Have a bigger gun than the other guy. Have a bigger stick than the other guy. Have a bigger army than the other guy. That's how you win. That's how you get a victory. Have more force just just punish your enemies and force your own will on them that's how you win and that's exactly what the world was expecting and that's what the kingdoms of darkness were expecting and Jesus did the complete opposite he was meek humble submissive and in doing so Jesus took the enemy completely off guard One of the greatest fights of all time is the Rumble in the Jungle. 1974 in Zaire, Africa, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman. Muhammad Ali was 32 years old. George Foreman's 25 years old. It's a huge match. Ali had lost uh, uh, the heavyweight belt. Foreman came into it, the heavyweight champion. Um, People were expecting it to be an incredible, incredible fight. There was like a four-day buildup to this fight of like a music festival and everything getting ready for it. People were expecting it to be the fight of the century, But there was a unanimous consent that Foreman was going to win. He was 25, seven years younger than Ali. He's quicker. He's stronger. Foreman was known for, man, his punches were just devastating, devastating. And so even though people thought it would be a good fight, it was already pretty much decided, yeah, Ali will probably last for a while, but eventually Foreman's going to knock him out. Eventually Foreman's going to take him down because Foreman's just so good and he's so young and he's so strong and he's so quick. So... The fight begins, and round one goes pretty much according to what everyone thought. It was a pretty decent round, um, but Foreman got the best of Ali, for sure. So as you're watching round one, you're thinking, yeah, this is going to play out exactly how we thought it's going to play out. Like, eventually, the stronger guys is going to win. Eventually, that's that's what's going to happen. So they go back to their corners, uh, and as they're getting ready to come out for round two, um, I'm sure people who had listened to the news ahead of the fight, were reminded of what Ali said. In the days leading up to the fight, Ali said that him and his trainer had been working on a secret plan. He said, we got a plan for Foreman. And so round two starts, they come out, and rather than engaging in the normal boxing tactics that Ali usually used, he starts leaning back on the ropes. No one ever seen anything like this. He's just leaning back on the ropes. And so Foreman comes up and just starts waylaying on, just starts throwing haymakers. So Ali's just laying back. He's keeping his head covered, doesn't want to take any head shots. But Foreman is just unleashing, punishing body blow one after another, just laying in to Ali round after round after round. Estimates were saying that he threw uh, more punches, like a seven to one. For every seven Foreman would throw, Ali would throw one. It, w- it wasn't even close, just obliterating it. And this happened round two, round three, round four, round five. But there's a noticeable change happening around round five, round six. Suddenly, Foreman, who had been so energetic, looked to be in peak condition, was totally just jumping around the ring, looked all spry, looked looked energetic. Suddenly, he was starting to lose some energy. He was getting exhausted. Round six and seven, he was still unleashing Punches on Ali, but they weren't nearly as ferocious as they used to be. And then round eight came. And Ali saw his moment, and he took it to Foreman. Got off the ropes and started laying into him, delivered a blow that sent Foreman to the ground, tried to stand up, staggered to his knees, couldn't do it. Couldn't get up. The ref called the fight. TKO, technical knockout. Muhammad, Ali won. And he won by completely and utterly exhausting George Foreman took the worst that Foreman could throw his way. After the fight, Foreman said, and, and Muhammad Ali corroborated this, that after the fight, uh, at different points in the fifth or sixth round, when Foreman had just been giving literally everything he has to knock this man out, just delivering punishing blow after punishing blow, Foreman said that whenever they would get kind of tangled up and kind of, you know, hug, we're, we're, do that as boxers to try to get a little bit of a break that whenever they would do that that Ali whispered in his ear in about the fifth or sixth round is that all you got George is that it they told me you hit like Frazier come on George this can't be the best that you got and Foreman said he walked back to his corner completely and utterly demoralized thinking I'm I'm throwing blows that would kill a normal person to his stomach to his chest I, I mean I'm, I'm laying into him and it's doing nothing. All that's happening is I'm getting exhausted. All that's happening is I'm losing my strength. That is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He took every punishing body blow that sin could throw his way. He took its worst, and he exhausted it as only he could. You never could. I never could. Jesus could, and he did. He exhausted sin as only he can do. I want us to Think about the scriptures we read back at the start of today's sermon again, Matthew chapter 8. Think about all of the people that Jesus encountered, the person with leprosy, the the person with the fever, paralysis, the demon-possessed people, the, the people in the midst of the storm. You see, in all of those situations, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus encountered sin, and rather than sin taking him out, he absorbed the full brunt of it, and the person got healed. Sin never affected Jesus. Jesus always affected sin. When sin meets Jesus, he doesn't get infected. We get healed. When sin meets Jesus, we get healed. He exhausts the force until there is no power left. I have one other scripture I wanted to read. This isn't uh, uh, on the slides. I just added this in uh, so our tech team didn't have time to put it in. But this is what it says in 1 first, first Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55-57. through 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I hear when I, when I read that? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, sin, where is your sting? I hear, is that all you got, George? <laughs> that it? Man, they, t- they told me you hit a lot harder than this. Is this all that you've got? Jesus took the full brunt of it. He took every bit of sin and absorbed its effects on the cross. And what happened on the cross was like every other encounter Jesus had with sin. Every other time he encountered sin, he absorbed it, took on its full effects, and healed the people he came in contact with. That's the gold from Golgotha that we're talking about today the goodness behind Good Friday. The fact that on the cross, the climax of the story of how God became king, Jesus confronted sins and accusations against us. And rather than it leading to his condemnation, it led to our salvation. That's what we celebrate. And that's what we remember today. Our healing, our wholeness, our life is all because of his death, but it didn't stop there. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come back on stage. Um, Like I said, the cross was the climax. The cross wasn't The conclusion, Sunday came, Jesus rose, and Jesus didn't just exhaust sin at one point. He is still exhausting sin today. He's still absorbing the full effects of our sin to this very day. The question is, do you want him to absorb your sin? Do you want him to take on the full brunt, the full effect of the wrongs in your life? This is the last scripture I'm going to read today. This is from John chapter 5. Listen to what scripture tells us. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethsaida with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, people affected by the effects of sin, who were blind, who were lame, who were paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? What a crazy question. Of course he would, right? (laughs) I don't know. Would you like to get well? Because, can I tell you this? This is so important, this is so vital. Getting well, and what we're going to do here in a moment, getting well does not come from a formulaic prayer you pray one time in a church service. It's honestly, it's one of my biggest hesitations to doing traditional altar calls at the end. Because I don't want to ever give the impression that, well, you know what, I said that one prayer one time. Now I get to pretty much just do whatever the heck I want to do. I got my fire insurance. Getting well is not about a formulaic prayer. It is about a decision of kingship. That I am actively and daily making Jesus my king. Every single day, I am dying to myself and following his way. I'm I'm not following the war horse. No, I'm following mild and meek Jesus, self-sacrificing love. Do you want to get well? I promise you, if you make the decision to make Jesus your king, it will change everything about your life. Everything. If you choose to follow his ethics of self-sacrificing love, everything will will change. You just have to want it. last thing I'll say, this this is just a fact of the matter, Jesus is king. Like, he is right now. We, we, We talked about this week one of this series, when we say how God became king, we're not talking about one day in the future when every eye sees him. No, he's currently king. The world may not know it yet, but that's what we're doing. We're proclaiming the fact of this new reality that the world has to live in. And even if the world won't admit it, they kind of (laughs) know. They kind of know that back on the cross and then with the empty tomb, the power dynamics of the world shifted and things have never been the same. Why do you think that today we name our children after disciples? Names like John, Peter, Paul, Mark are all over the place. Guess what we name our dogs? Caesar. Nero, isn't it funny how power dynamics have shifted based off of 12 ordinary unschooled men and this carpenter that they followed who claimed that he rise from the dead. Everything changed off of that. Jesus is king right now. He is. The question is, are you going to let him be your king? Because it comes down to that personal choice that you make. I want to pray with you about that right now. If you would, let's bow our heads. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you are king. That that's not something we have to hope for happening one day. You currently are king of the world and you are, through your church, setting things right. God, I pray right now for the people who have not yet made that decision to make you king. That in these next moments they would say to you, Father God, I know that I can't do it on my own. I know I've sinned. I've sinned against you and my willpower it's not strong enough. I can never do this on my own. I, I can't handle life on my own. I can't handle life apart from you. And so Jesus, today I am handing my life over to you. I'm submitting myself to your kingship, to living out your example in my life, to loving the, the people around me the same way that you love me. I'm turning from my old life and I'm handing my life to you now that I can step into this new life and live it out through the power of your spirit. God, I also pray for everybody in this room who's been following Jesus but may have had tough times recently, may have been uh, faced with some things that are causing doubts in their mind, that today would be the day that they would pray that same prayer, that they would put their hands, their life, back into your hands. King Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for being our king, for being such a good king, for loving us, for going to the cross for us. God, you are our only king forever and we worship you today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to contact us or find out more about our ministry, head over to our website at cornerstonechurch.info. Have a great week.